All right, River West Church, great to be with you this morning. Will you do this with me while you're pulling out your Bible and opening up to Daniel chapter 5? Take just a moment to make sure that as your Bible is being opened, your hearts and your minds are being opened up to God in humility and trust. I believe the Lord has a word for us today from this incredible study we've been in. In the book of Daniel, we turn now from chapter 4 to chapter 5, and I've got a word for the church today about the power of keeping your cool when things start to fall apart. How does that sound today? I want to talk a little bit with you today about the impact that your life can have in this world by remaining composed as a follower of Christ, even when things appear to be falling apart and, and as perhaps others around us are, are freaking out, there's this unique power and impact that can be had simply by remaining composed. You know, Daniel was a person who lived a life of astounding faithfulness over the long haul. It's actually, it's a theme we've hinted at, but we haven't explicitly mentioned to you that the book of Daniel spans five decades of Daniel's life. So when we open chapter one, Daniel is this teenager, he's 17, and he's recently been made a prisoner of war, captured against his will. And But what you might not realize is that by the time we get to chapter five, verse one, Daniel is already in his 80s. He's lived a full life. He's lived through at least five different Kings, different different reigns in Babylon. He's he he will live to see two completely different kingdoms in his one lifetime. And one of the things that's so true about Daniel is that he lived this amazingly composed, faithful life. It can be really encouraging for the Christian because because Daniel and the other believers with him, they lived through some really crazy things. We've been using the word unprecedented for the times that we're in, but be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The people of God have historically gone through really difficult things. And what's amazing about Daniel is that he lived with such faithfulness through all of these things that God kept using him. His faithfulness, his, his composure as a, as, a, as a man of faith meant that God would draw upon Daniel's life to accomplish God's good purposes. So we're not going to talk about faithfulness this morning or composure just for composure's sake. That's not enough. What we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to talk about the good purposes of God and how it is that my life could be used in God's purposes by remaining faithful, by keeping my cool, by staying composed. And the book of Daniel has so much wisdom to share in that. So will you turn now with me, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Let me share a couple thoughts with you today. And then at the end of my message, I'm going to reveal to you the divine secret weapon 
the key for living a life of faithfulness over the long haul. But first, let's dive into Daniel. We look at it with me, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Here is what happens next. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. And so before I keep reading, of course, the very first thing you're thinking and every reader is going to think is, oh, wait a minute, who is this King Belshazzar? The, this name just comes out of nowhere, and, and the reader has had four straight chapters of Nebuchadnezzar, just so much about Nebuchadnezzar's life. And then suddenly, without warning, it's as if King Nebuchadnezzar just drops through the trapdoor of history, and suddenly we have a totally different king, we have a totally different setting. And what's more, all of the progress that was made, even spiritually or for good in the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar, all that Nebuchadnezzar had been through to transform his heart, all of it goes away in this transition to new leadership. Because what we're about to see is we're right back down to the bottom rung of the spiritual ladder in Babylon. One other quick thing I'll share about Belshazzar, just a little bit of history. I've tried not to do too much history. In fact, uh, I was speaking with a woman who has started worshiping at River West since COVID. And one of the things she, she, she wanted to share with me, she said, I, I want to thank you for, for doing just the perfect amount of historical context. Not, not too much that it gets dry and boring, but not so little that we don't understand everything that's happening in this story. But sometimes a little bit of history can be really helpful. And one of the, one of the things I've, I learned about Bel, Belshazzar this week is that for many hundreds of years, there was literally zero historical evidence for a king named Belshazzar. He wasn't in any of the records, uh, uh, Babylonian records. And actually, the only place that we had reference to this name came from the book of Daniel. And so, of course, secular historians and scholars use that as a way to critique the Bible and claim that it's unhistorical. For hundreds of years, we had no record until about the mid-1800s when a British archaeologist was digging near Babylon, and he dug down into the foundations of a really old ziggurat, which is, almost looks like a pyramid, and he found in the four corners of this ancient ziggurat what are called these, they were these clay cylinders. And these clay cylinders, they were about this big. I, we, I, I might even have a picture for you so you can look at it. These were called the Nabonidus cylinders because they were written and stored in the foundations of this ziggurat by a king, the last Babylonian king named Nabonidus. And these cylinders told the history of the kings of Babylon. And one of the amazing things that we learned from these cylinders is that King Nabonidus, who was the last king, he was four kings after Nebuchadnezzar, he left Babylon for about eight to 10 years and he found himself in Arabia and he left on the seat of his throne in charge of his kingdom, his son. And can you guess the name of that son who was now the king in charge. You got it. 
His name was Belshazzar. Just a little word to encourage you, friends. The Bible is reliable. The Bible is historical. The Bible is trustworthy. And now we have this explanation of why it is that we turn the pages to chapter 5, and we're some 23 years later after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and we have this king named Belshazzar. But what we're about to see is he has no desire to honor the God of Israel. Here's what happened. He throws this party for thousands and he drinks wine in front of thousands. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, that can also be the word predecessor, so it doesn't mean his biological father, it just means his, his predecessor as king, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, and that word means exactly what you think it means, all right? This is not some polite cocktail party, hipster party. This is more like a fraternity house party, all right? It's going to be wild. It's going to be crazy. There's going to be debauchery. It's going to get nuts. So he pulls these vessels out of the temple, and he, and he brings them so that the king, his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So this is like a wild party. Thousands of people there, tons of drinking. Tons of celebrating, tons of debauchery. This is, this is like the out-of-control house, Babylonian house party, all right? But there's something going on here that's really dark. You could almost say sinister. There's a, a, a mocking of God that's happening here, something that even Nebuchadnezzar on his worst day would have never done. This new king, Belshazzar, he has a very different posture towards God. And this act of taking these, these vessels, I don't know if you remember these vessels, they take us back to chapter one, right in the beginning when, when, when the narrator tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, when he sacked Jerusalem, he stole from the temple these precious vessels of gold, and silver, and he brought them back. And Belshazzar knew about these vessels. And here he is, you know, he's several glasses of wine in, which is not when we usually make our best decisions, right? And he's thinking, what can I do here to really take this party to the next level? I know I'm going to mock the God of Israel. I'm going to go get these vessels. Now, you've got to realize these, these, these gold and silver cups and chalices, these were sacred and precious to the, to the Jewish people. A Jew reading this story, this is the moment where jaws would drop. People would gasp. <gasps> the sacrilege, the sinister sacrilege, the, 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 the mocking of God to take these precious vessels that were a part of the, the, the temple worship of the people of Israel. They were used to offer sacrifices before a holy God. And here is Belshazzar and his concubines and his friends drinking wine out of them and using them to worship 
idols of gold and silver and wood and stone. Amazing. I tried to think about how could I help you get inside what this would be like. Imagine you're driving past our church on a Saturday night late and you notice all the lights are on and you hear loud thumping music. It's like German underground house music just pumping, okay, out of the sanctuary. And so you pull over, you're shocked, you can't believe the lights are on. And as you approach the sanctuary, you realize people have broken into our sanctuary and they are using our sanctuary to throw a wild party and it's out of control. And imagine there are really inappropriate things happening. People are dancing on chairs. People are tearing out pages of the Bible and using them to roll up doobies or whatever you can imagine. And imagine how your heart would feel about that. That's, that's this moment. That's this moment. And the question is, does God have a line? Where does God draw the line when it comes to stuff like this? Apparently, right here. Because you see the very next word? It says what happened next immediately. Look at this. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the landstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And there's no arm, there's no body, there's no person. Can you imagine? This is how you get sober really fat. This is like the buzzkill of all buzzkills. A hand shows up disconnected from a body and begins to write on the plaster of the wall. And it happens right near the lampstand. So the room is dark. The party is happening. And just so that it's clear, so everyone in the party can see what's happening, this hand writes in the, in the light of the lampstand for all to see. And look what happened. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. That, that phrase in the Hebrew actually, it literally says the knots of his loins were loosed, which means exactly what you think it means. He lost control of his bowels. He literally, he soiled himself. He was so freaked out. The knots of his loins were loosed. His limbs gave way. And his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly. He's freaked out. He's panicking. He calls loudly to bring in, look who it is again. Where do, where do pagan kings, where do Babylonian kings turn when they're freaked out? They always turn to their wise men, their enchanters. Here they come, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, and shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be called the third ruler in the kingdom, right? Because Belshazzar is the second ruler. So now this makes sense, doesn't it? The third ruler, you think, why is that that big of a deal? Well, because Nabonidus is the king, he's away. Belshazzar is maintaining the throne. So the only thing he can really give is the third place of power, very interesting. He taps into their motives for power and prestige and honor. This is not about discerning truth. This is about people advancing themselves in the world. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was greatly alarmed, and his color 
changed. And his lords were perplexed. His color changed again. It had already changed once. It's like, how many times can a person's color change? But he's perplexed. His color keeps changing. This is a dark moment in his life. And what I want to do is, before we keep reading, because we're wondering, where's Daniel? Okay, Daniel's going to show up. But wait a minute. We can't rush ahead. I want you to think about something with me for just a minute. Sometimes... God brings people to a place like this. And he, and he does it out of kindness. In fact, one commentator calls this moment an act of severe kindness. Because what God does is it's, it's sort of a hidden grace, but sometimes he'll, he'll bring a person to the edge, to the very edge where, where they come to the end of themselves they come to the end of their resources. They come to the end of their explanatory powers. And they even come to the realization that all of the things that they traditionally turn to, Chaldeans and magicians and wise, whatever, whatever the wisdom that the world has to offer, a person will sometimes come to a place where they realize all of this is futile. All of this ultimately fails me. Oh, it might help in the little things, but when I get to the ultimate things, the God-sized problems, suddenly you come to the stark realization, I'm at the end of myself. And he allowed this king to experience this deeply. There he is. His, his legs are shaking. He has soiled himself. He's still partially intoxicated, but he's sobering up so quickly. And why would God do something like this? Friends, this is a gracious opportunity that God is offering this king, an opportunity for heart transformation. And so look what happens next. Verse 10 is where we left off. The queen, this would have been probably Belshazzar's mother, who was probably not at the party. So this is the queen mother. Because of the words of the king and his lords, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom. She says, I know a guy. I know this guy. And of course, we don't even have to know. We, we already know who she's going to talk to Belshazzar about. And it's, it's this theme that I want to develop for you. Faithfulness over the course of your lifetime and the power of that. It's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar died. 23 years have passed. And the reader coming to know that realizes where, what's been happening in Daniel's life? It's like history has just passed by and Daniel is just sort of off on the sidelines of history. And no one really knows how Daniel spent those 23 years. He's probably retired right now. Maybe, you know, maybe he took up gardening or golfing or whatever, but Daniel just lived his life. He paid his taxes. He, he, he cooked and ate meals and spent time with his family, but his life just sort of carried on, but he remained faithful. And then suddenly this massive crisis hits. And where does the queen mother turn? Who does she immediately think of in this moment? Wait a minute, king. I know a guy. I know a guy. And notice 
Now, notice next how she describes him. I want you to think New Testament here as we read the way she describes Daniel. She says, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And the thing you need to realize is this is a very uncommon way for, for, for old pagan religions to speak. The spirit of, 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 of a God would never indwell someone. That's a, that's a New Testament idea. That's post-Pentecost, okay? The old pagan, old, old religions, in those religions, God is distant. God is to be feared. God is to be appeased. God certainly never gets up close and personal, and he certainly never indwells someone. But, but this Daniel, he's different. He, he had a relationship with, with a totally different kind of God, and he, and he actually had the spirit of that God in him. And look what she says next. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. There it is again. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. It's a direct repeat of what the queen mother had said. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not, they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give me interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed. What does he get, Johnny? What's his prize behind door number three? Purple and and a, and a gold chain, right? You'll be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And, and, and we got to try to get into this room, okay? Because this moment is so critical. And what the narrator is doing here is the narrator is creating this massive contrast between these two characters, they could not be more different. And it's, and it's going to be in, in getting to the heart of this contrast that we're going to find the key to living a life of faithfulness over the long haul, to living a life of godly composure. Here we have two people who could not be on different ends of the spectrum, right? We have Daniel, and he's in his 80s, and he, and, he, and, he, and he walks in there, and my guess is he was so composed. He's mature. He's godly. He's cool as a cucumber. There he is, right? He's standing before this king. This king is probably just barely finished puberty, and he, has, he is falling apart. It has not been 
the best day in this king's life. He's literally soiled himself. He's still partially intoxicated. He's freaked out of his mind. His legs have been clanging together. And yet, ironically, in this moment, he still tries to boss Daniel around. He, he tries to feign confidence when in reality, behind the scene, he knows his world is falling apart. And the reader knows it. And they can see the contrast. And there the two stand. And what I want to propose to you is we can, we can benefit from this moment by thinking about it for just a minute. So we're going to finish this the story out next Sunday. Today, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to this contrast. And in particular, I think there are, there are three sort of themes or, or three ideas or, or three points of contrast between Daniel and Belshazzar. And it's in understanding these three points of contrast that we can find the key to living a life of faithfulness over the long haul. So we, we think about these three words. I'm going to put them up here so you can sort of ponder them with me. The words are this, um, identity, self-control, and wisdom. Will you just think about those three words for a moment? I'm going to just leave them up there and, and let you chew on them for a minute. Daniel and Belshazzar could not be more different in, in identity Okay, one of them knows exactly who he is before the God of heaven, before the creator, and the other one has no clue who he is, right? Self-control, that one's obvious. It's clear to see the contrast in self-control and even wisdom. And what I'd like to do for just a few moments is, is draw out some, some thinking around these three things. We start with, with identity. You know, as I thought about identity this week, it's dawned on me that how you live in this world will always flow from who you really think you are. You won't even always be able to control your behavior. Behavior will naturally flow from identity. Isn't that true? but who you really think you are. The, the greatest illustration I, I, I can think of this is we've had moments in our sanctuary during a worship service where we'll have like a small um, medical emergency. Someone will pass out or have some kind of a medical situation. And one of the things I've noticed is when that happens, there, there will be a few people nearby who will immediately jump up and rush in to help. And you know who they are? They're, they're, they're first responders. Thank God for first responders, right, brothers and sisters in these days? Uh, nurses and doctors and people who are paramedics. It's so a part of their identity that when, when a crisis hits, a medical crisis, they know immediately, this is my moment. And they just, they just rush in. It's like firemen who, who, without even thinking, will rush into a building that's up in flames. Why would someone do that? It's because their identity is driving their behavior. And this theme of identity is all over, it's all over Daniel. And it shows up especially when, when it comes to the, the whole theme of names. Have you noticed this? Names are everywhere. And people's names always have meaning. And, in, and the names come up again in this passage. Did you notice it? Will you look back at your Bible at verses 11 and 12? Remember this moment? The king mother or the queen mother, she's describing Daniel to, 
to her grandson, Belshazzar. And she says, you know, I know, I know this, this guy. And she says in the, in the second half of verse 12, um, you know, this person, his name was Daniel, but, but the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had tried to change his name to Belteshazzar. But then she says, now let Daniel be brought, to be called. Let him be brought in and he will show the interpretation. And then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king answered and said to Daniel. See, Daniel was his God-given name and his God-given identity. And that name Daniel was rich with meaning. That name Daniel meant God is my judge. Elohim is my judge. That was his identity. Even though Babylon kept trying to change his name and change his identity. We learned that Belteshazzar means may Bel protect his life. Bel was the the Babylonian god Marduk. And so Babylon kept trying to tell Daniel what his identity was. And Daniel kept refusing to accept it. And over the course of the book, kings will try to call him Belteshazzar. And eventually they just give up and say, you know what? This person, his identity, his name is Daniel. That's his name. And brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? It doesn't matter what this world tries to tell you about your identity. This world does not have the authority to tell you who you are. If God tells you you are loved, then you're loved. If God tells you that he is your protector, you're protected by God. If God tells you you are forgiven, you're forgiven. If God tells you you're righteous in Christ, brothers and sisters, you are righteous in Christ. If God tells you I've chosen you, friends, you're chosen. I think of Colossians 3, verse 12, where where Paul said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You remember that verse? God looks at you and he says, you're the object of my love, you're beloved, you're chosen, you're holy. And it doesn't matter what the world tells you. That's who you are. That is your fundamental identity. And if you don't know what your identity is, that will impact how you behave in this world, how faithfully you live. But friends, please hear what I'm about to say to you. Only Jesus Christ has the authority to tell you who you really are. Only Jesus has the authority to to give you a name or even to change your name to something new, something gospel. I think uh, of that moment when Jesus, he walked up to the tax booth. Do you remember this moment? Mark tells the story. Luke tells the story. Matthew tells the story of Jesus walking up to a tax booth and there's a man there named Levi and Jesus changes his identity. And he says, I want you to drop everything and follow me. You're going to become one of my disciples. And Levi immediately, he responds to the authority of Christ and his identity is immediately changed. And you know what's really interesting? In the gospels, Mark tells us that his name is Levi. But when you read Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that his name was Matthew. Did you know that? And people have tried to figure this out. And some people have said, well, maybe one of them was his Hebrew name. Maybe his Hebrew name was Levi and his Greek name was Matthew. But the problem is that Matthew and Levi are both Hebrew names. And actually, I don't know if you know this, the two names mean different things. So the name Levi means to take, which would have been a great description of Levi, the tax collector. He was a taker, which is why he was so despised. But do you know what the name Matthew means? 
The name Matthew means the gift of the Lord. And you know what I think happened? I think Jesus changed his name. I think Jesus said, Babylon does not have the authority to change your name, but there is one person in the universe who has the authority to do that, and it's me. And I think he said to Levi, you're no longer a taker. You know who you are now? You're Matthew. You're a gift of the Lord. Friends, do you know who your identity is before Jesus Christ? Let Jesus tell you who you are. Amen? Okay, so there's identity, self-control. Of the three categories, this is probably the easiest one to see in this moment. These two, uh, Daniel and Belshazzar, could not be more different when it comes to self-control, right? Here we have this king. He's still sobering up from a night of drunken foolishness, poor decision-making, lack of self-control. It's written all over his body. You can literally smell it on him, right? And then in contrast, you have Daniel, who's totally on the other end. He's clear-headed. He's sensible. He's poised. Maybe you remember our narrator in chapter 2 when he described Daniel. He used words like prudence and discretion. This was Daniel. And friends, can I tell you something? Believers, people of faith who walk in this world with self-control, they're very useful for God. God tends to use people who live with self-control to accomplish his good purposes in this world. Isn't that true? Did you know that that word self-control, did you know that that word shows up in a list of fruits of the Holy Spirit? It's actually very surprising. It's the very last word. And it seems to stick out. If you go later and read Galatians 5, self-control pops off the page as you're reading all of these lofty, beautiful spiritual words like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And then suddenly you get to the end of the list and it's like, self-control. And the reader's thinking, self-control, how Interesting, And yet, it's a fruit that God's Holy Spirit wants to cause to grow in the life of his followers. I love that. It's critical. So what is self-control? One of the best ways to grasp the meaning of it or the concept is to imagine the opposite. You can think of, you can think of what it's like uh, someone who's completely out of control. They have no self-control. What does that look like? A person who just gives full expression to everything that they want to do or think or feel. The opposite of self-control might be self-indulgence, right? And actually, in Galatians, Paul describes the opposite of self-control just a couple verses before this list of the fruits of the Spirit when when he's describing the acts of the flesh. Let me just read this. I'll put it up, and you can go back and read it later. But... Paul wants to describe the works of the flesh in comparison to the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what he says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're very evident. And so is a lack of self-control. What do they include? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like a Babylonian house party, right? That's what we just read. 
sorcery, idolatry, sensuality. He goes on, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. I could go on and on. The the opposite of self-control is really obvious. It's marked. But God's spirit wants to create something totally different in the life of his people. He wants to create self-control. So so self-control describes this this inner strength from the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's it's a fruit of the Spirit. You, You cannot do this without God's Holy Spirit at work in you. And what one of the things that God's Spirit does is that he, he, he gives to the believer this ongoing, increasing ability to begin to maintain control over how we behave, how we, how we feel, what we're thinking. So often when we think of self-control, we only think of things that we're doing, but that's not how the New Testament describes self-control. In the New Testament, self-control, yes, it involves what you do in your life, but it also involves how you think. So Paul will say things like, take every thought captive for Christ. Or Paul will speak of emotions. He'll, or James, the, 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 the writer of the book of James, he said, remember this? I love this verse. He said, be, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to what? To, to anger. It's as if self-control involves also my emotions and my thinking. You need self-control on all these things. Just because I think something does not mean that it's necessarily totally right or that I should just give full expression to it with no limits. Just because I feel something, emotions are powerful. They can be helpful. But just because I'm having an emotion does not necessarily mean I should immediately broadcast it to the world or give full expression to it. Especially, can you agree with me, if I'm doing something like that on social media, terribly unhelpful, right? And so what we have here is we have this contrast around self-control. And God uses people who live with self-control powerfully. He often draws on their resources when, when crises hit. That's what happened here. Here's Daniel. He's been in retirement for 23 years. And suddenly, when a God-sized problem shows up, the queen mother says, I know a guy. And he's really composed. And he has the spirit of the living God in him. I think we can trust him. We should reach out to him. Incredible. So identity, self-control, and then finally, and we'll land the plane here, wisdom. And what I want to do here is I'm going to fill that in just a little bit because wisdom is too broad. It can be a little bit nebulous. So I, I want to fill it in by saying, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about true spiritual wisdom. So a, a wisdom that comes from God's Holy Spirit. This is what we're talking about. And we see that contrast in Daniel 5. Or, or, or Daniel, yeah, Daniel 5. Daniel has this clearly. He has the Spirit of God in him. And clearly this king doesn't. He, he's lacking wisdom completely. And not only is the king lacking it, all of his wise men, his enchanters, the Chaldeans, none of them have true spiritual wisdom. They have no access to any kind of ultimate spiritual reality which is why the panic, why things start falling to pieces around them. 
And this is why when the queen mother comes in, notice the words that she uses to describe Daniel. She not only says that the spirit of the gods dwell in him, but notice this cluster of words in 11 and 12. She says there's a light in him, a light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. So the, the spirit of the God dwells in him, but, but there's light in him, illumination. He is enlightened somehow spiritually in a unique way. And that is accompanied with wisdom and understanding and an ability to interpret things. And I want to ask you, when you hear that cluster of words, the spirit and being enlightened and wisdom and understanding and knowledge, does that remind you of any verses in the New Testament. I bet it does. And the one I'm thinking of specifically is in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Will you turn there with me? Ephesians 1. I'll read this to sort of close out our time together. Do you remember what Paul said to the Ephesians? He told them he had been praying for them. And in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 16... Here's how Paul said, here's how I pray for you. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, pay attention, think Daniel chapter 5, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That it, that it, the root of that word is the Greek word for light. So you're enlightened, you have knowledge, you have wisdom. And where does it come from? From the spirit of the living God, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Brothers and sisters, there's a kind of wisdom that allows the people of God to live faithfully not just in the short term, but over the long term of your life. How powerful that is. How powerful that is. And that same spirit who was in Daniel, that same spirit who empowered Daniel, who brought wisdom to Daniel and light to Daniel, the very same spirit who indwelt the Lord Jesus Christ and empowered his life. We studied this in the Gospel of Luke. That same spirit who was in Daniel is the same spirit who lived and indwelled the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to the New Testament and Paul will tell us in places like Romans 8, that same spirit, if you love Jesus and you believe in Jesus and you're following Jesus, that same spirit lives in you. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead in power lives and indwells you. Why? So that you would grow in wisdom and self-control so that you would know your identity and you would live in it, in this world that's so desperate for people who are composed and faithful over the long haul. Friends, can we agree that the gift of God's Holy Spirit is the most precious gift? Belshazzar had fame. Belshazzar had power. Belshazzar had wealth. He had glory. He had every pleasure the world could offer him. But when things fell apart, 
And the one thing that was actually needed, Belshazzar came to the realization he did not have it. And there was a man in his kingdom, and this man did not have wealth, he did not have power, he did not have fame, he did not have pleasure, he did not have the the world at his doorstep, but he had the one thing that Belshazzar needed. When when a God-sized problem showed up, it was Daniel who had the spirit of the living God in him, empowering him. And it made all the difference. And so, friends, praise God for his goodness to us in Christ through his gift of the Spirit. Can I pray for you about that as we prepare our hearts to worship together this morning? We we bow your heads with me and let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we take this moment as we're seated in our homes, many of us with people who are surrounding us who we know well, members of a community group, neighbors, members of house church style of worship, maybe just direct family members. We take this moment together in prayer just to agree together and to say thank you and to agree with the Apostle Paul when when he prayed for the church that, that the church would continue to be filled anew, again and again, with deeper fullness of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, how desperately we need your Holy Spirit in these days. Because we want to be people who are faithful. We want to be people who are courageous. We want to be people who know our identity in Christ. We want to be people who live with self-control. We want to be people who are, wit- who are wise. And we know, and we confess, and we believe that we only have access to those things through the power and the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so would you fill us anew this morning, especially now, God, as we worship together. Would you do a mighty work in our hearts? We pray and we ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, friends. Let's worship together. And I'll come back in just a moment and say a prayer for us.